This is Macro Horizons, episode 27. What a difference a J makes. Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of July 15th. And as the pleasant summer weather beckons, we're still lamenting the fact that outdoor trading desks never caught on. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market, but more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. What a week, Ian. What a week it was. We learned a fair amount in the Treasury market this week, and one of my biggest takeaways from the second week in July was that the Treasury market went from pricing in a policy error in the wake of the stronger-than-expected non-farm payrolls report to very quickly siding with Chair Powell in assuming that a series of rate cuts will ultimately lead to a reflationary environment. Now, as evidence, what I'm using is the shape of the yield curve and the way that the Treasury market traded. The period between the employment report and Powell's testimony, we saw a reasonable and rather dramatic flattening in the twos tens curve. Immediately following the testimony, we saw twos tens re-steepen out, and that was aided even further by the slightly higher than expected core CPI print. And we now have twos tens back above 25 basis points, and this is a range where we've seen a reasonable amount of consolidation. And while we continue to anticipate the breakout beyond 30 basis points, at this stage we expect that we'll need an actual cut on the books to have a sustainable break above 30 basis points. So this implies a period of consolidation in the curve. It's also worth noting the reception to the auctions this week. The front-end auction, the three-year, went reasonably well. That's very consistent with where we are in the monetary policy cycle. If investors are anticipating a series of rate cuts with the potential for a more significant campaign later, it will be attractive to be in the front end of the curve. Tens and thirties, however, didn't fare as well. We had a nine-tenths of a basis point tail in tens, and an impressive 2.7 basis point tail for the long bond. This reinforces the idea that if the Fed is actually going to start cutting, it should be stimulative for inflation expectations, if not realized inflation. On the topic of inflation, June saw the largest gain in core CPI since January 2018. Within the series, we saw continued strength in owner's equivalent rent. That's an area that we have been watching carefully given the general softness in the housing market in the latter part of 2018 and throughout 2019. Apparel was also a big mover, propping up the core inflation series, but to a large extent that's a function of the dollar. And as we look forward to the FOMC's upcoming easing campaign, 
notions of how the dollar will perform versus the euro and other global currencies have clear implications for the risk that the U.S. will find itself in a position to actually be importing inflation for the first time in a while. Commodities such as oil trade in dollar terms, and so a weaker dollar implies higher energy prices that will flow through to headline CPI and ultimately function as a tax on the consumer, at least in terms of headline inflation. Now the counterpoint here being, if some of the weaker dollar leads to higher core inflation as well, that will be very beneficial in the Fed's attempt to redefine the market's interpretation of how the Fed will approach inflation, i.e. taking a more symmetric stance and fighting inflation from the downside. With that backdrop, we expect that the Treasury market will grind sideways with an incremental amount of steepening pressure into the July 31st FOMC meeting. So Powell has essentially told us the Fed's going to be cutting 25 basis points at the end of the month. At this stage, a quarter point ease at the end of July is pretty much a given. It's completely priced in. The biggest question now becomes how many 25 basis point rate cuts are they going to do? Most people are using the experience from the mid-90s as a guide, assuming that we're going to have three 25 basis point rate cuts accomplished by the end of this year. But the June CPI figure is surprised to the upside. We saw a 2.1% year-over-year read on the core figure. Does that play into the calculus of how many rate cuts the Fed will ultimately be able to execute? Had we not seen the prior four months disappoint on core CPI, I think that we would be in an entirely different situation. On the margin, all the inflation data did was to reduce the probability that we have a 50 basis point rate cut at the end of July, rather than the 25, which Powell has made it very clear is the baseline assumption at this point. And I think further to that point, what we've seen in break-even space also reinforces exactly that idea. Given that we've seen a pickup, albeit a modest one, from the low 160 level to the mid 170s level in tenure space, I think that the fact that we are starting to see perhaps some build of inflation expectations is a welcome development for those on the Fed. And while it is undoubtedly a positive, the fact that expectations are still so far below that 2% target means that at least a few rate cuts are necessary in order to get the anticipation for price pressures back up to where the committee would like them. Well, it also bodes very well for the re-steepening trade that we've been on about for a while. We tried to make a relatively nuanced argument recently, which was the market can see sub-2% 10-year yields this summer, but ultimately end with a steeper curve and 10-year yields in a 225 to 250 range at the end of the year. Wait, is, is that you being bearish? To be fair, there's no such thing as bearishly calling for 225 to 250 10-year yields. It is an in-range backup. If you look historically, 10-year yields have been in a very definable zone over the course of the last five to seven years, 250 to 25 very much in that space. And it's also consistent with a Fed that is willing to jump in front of any slowdown and truly try to recraft the market's understanding of policymakers' relationship with inflation. And I think this past week is a really good example of that, that while 
Sure, we saw 10-year yields rise from that 194 level back up to the 205, 206 zone, but that's far different from a bearish treasury market. Rather, that's just a calibration and a refining of market expectations at this point in the cycle. To your point, not something that's going to meaningfully trigger a run back towards, say, 3%. Yes, and we also have plenty of evidence about what happens when 10-year yields get above 3% for any sustainable period. Recall the spike in equity market vol in the fourth quarter that ultimately led to Powell's pivot. Yeah, and Powell's pause at the start of this year and now pivot to cutting seems to have given risk assets pretty much what they were looking for. We have the S&P at 3,000 based on the realization that rates are in fact going to be lowered at the end of this month. But to me, I'm wondering, well, that's been enough so far this year to have stocks perform reasonably well. Are we just going to keep having this conversation again in September, again in December, as equity market investors are going to continue to expect that the Fed is going to act to ease financial conditions and thus help stock performance? One of the most fascinating aspects of this particular stage in the rate cycle has been the fact that the Fed appears content to manage ahead of any tightening in financial conditions. Frankly, I find it almost surprising that the Fed is willing to cut rates in July, given where financial conditions are at this point, especially in light of what we saw in Q4. In Q4, financial conditions significantly tightened long before we heard anything from the Fed. Does this represent a shift in how the Fed is dealing with financial conditions, or is the Fed seeing something in the tea leaves that the rest of us don't? Regardless, it seems pretty safe to assume that we will be back in September having a similar conversation, especially if there are any expectations for the Fed to skip September to see what the first rate cut has done. But in seeing what that first rate cut has done, I would argue that the lagged impact of monetary policy might mean that if, in fact, the committee wants to take a few meetings off, by necessity, that period of time is going to need to be a little bit longer, which in a way is a self-fulfilling prophecy because the Fed cuts once and then goes back on pause for call it six months. The market's going to read that as quote unquote hawkish, even if in fact rates are going to be coming down further. So in a way, I think Powell has inadvertently pre-committed to a series of eases rather than just a one-off to go back to the patient stance. Well, that certainly is what's being priced in the futures market at this moment. And to some extent, the Fed's willingness to let the pricing stand and not push back explains why the Fed is to a large extent locked into some series of rate cuts over the next couple quarters. And we've been talking a lot about futures pricing and what that implies for probabilities of rate cuts. And I just like to kind of bring it back to the example that you used of the 1990s episode. And in those instances, when we looked at what the futures market reaction was to the Fed's first ease of a quote unquote preemptive easing cycle, in both 95 and 98, it was three 25 basis point cuts. And unsurprisingly, what we saw in that instance was following the first 25 basis point cut, Six months out, the futures market priced in a little bit less than two more 25 basis point cuts. Now, this makes sense and is a little bit reminiscent of what we talked about in last year's hiking cycle, in that investors were really only ever willing to bake in two rate hikes at a time. So using history as a rough approximation, the same holds true on the easing side of the equation. 
But what I thought was really interesting about this is how quickly the market shifted from pricing in cuts in both 95 and 98 to then relatively quickly switching back to pricing in hikes as it became clear that rates were going to remain where they were for the foreseeable future. The one thing that I would add there is that assumes that we're facing a situation comparable to what we had in the 90s where there was an external shock it was currency-led in both situations in the 90s that undermined risk assets but didn't necessarily flow through to the real economy in any sustainable way. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think just based on the conversations I've had with people this week, the question for the shape of the curve, the question for the futures market, really the question of the path forward is going to be whether or not the Fed is able to pull off this quote-unquote soft landing. If the soft landing is in fact achieved, we can see Fed funds somewhere between one and a half or two percent. However, if not, and things deteriorate more quickly, whether that be because of trade, Europe, or insert risk facing the economy here, then a quick return to the effective lower bound is probably going to be the path of least resistance. Ben, you make a very good point. There are external factors driving this rethink of monetary policy and the outlook for the economy. And as Powell has said several times, there are uncertainties. If and when these uncertainties are resolved, will the market go back to trading as usual? Seems unlikely, frankly. My baseline assumption is that enough damage has already been done to business sentiment, and we're starting to see that in some of the CapEx numbers. We're starting to see that in a lot of the anecdotes. And when companies are nervous about the future, companies are less willing to invest in capacity, and that in and of itself may ultimately be the impetus for a more material slowdown. So how do you square this sort of long-term pessimism with what, dare I say, sounds like some near-term optimism? Let us not mistake deep cynicism for optimism. In fact, I'm looking at the traditional seasonal patterns in the treasury market, and what we see is prior to the crisis, there was a strong tendency for the first quarter of the year to be characterized by an optimistic outlook. Ten-year yields would tend to drift higher, essentially into the May refunding auction. And then as the economic realities became apparent of how the year was shaping up, we would see 10-year yields almost invariably drift lower into the middle of September. It's effectively the opposite of what we see in the equity market, which is the classic sell in May and go away. What I find striking, however, is that since the crisis, I'm using a period now of 2010 to 2018, what we have seen is some of that optimism has been brought forward into the fourth quarter, at least on average in the seasonals. Again, arguably more art than science. Nonetheless, if we think about the last few years, there was always some event in the fourth quarter. For example, the end of QE, and then the next year was going to be great. The first rate hike, and then the next year was going to be great. The Trump election, and then the next year was going to be great. And throughout all of those periods, what we saw was a bearish run for treasuries in the fourth quarter. And frankly, that's informing some of my thinking for the rest of the year. And we can already envision where that optimism is coming from, two or three rate cuts from the Fed. Shouldn't that be inflationary? Shouldn't that prompt some growth? And in that context, we should certainly see 10-year yields edge a bit higher from here. So next year is going to be great? It's going to be great. Well, maybe not.
In fact, what I'm expecting is that this first round of optimism triggered by preemptive easing is going to be relatively short-lived and results in an even dimmer outlook in 2020. But that's a next-year problem, as they'd like to say. Let us not forget that there's also going to be a fair amount of uncertainty around the election. Obviously, the campaigning and the process is already starting to heat up. One of the many colossal miscalculations that I've managed to make over the course of my strategy career has been not only did I not anticipate the outcome of the 2016 election, but I was also surprised by the market's reaction. My biggest takeaway, at least, was the market trades the party. And using that logic going forward, the higher the probability that the GOP retains power, the better that will be for risk assets and consequently easier financial conditions requiring the Fed to do less in terms of adding stimulus. The flip side is if the Democrats appear poised to take the White House, then one should anticipate more significant headwinds for risk assets. So one could envision a world in which the Fed is actually prompted into action in a way that appears consistent with the administration's ambitions for a second term. Bringing it back to the short term, the steepening we've seen that's now pushed twos, tens back above 25 basis points, is that a go with move or do we still think that there could be some more flattening similar to what we saw earlier this last week that could maybe present a bit more appealing entry point? Obviously, the caveat here being timing is critical considering the negative carry on the trade. My first point would be that the trade carries so poorly. We've seen position squaring ahead of the weekend as a theme. And if that pattern continues, I'd actually anticipate a consolidation in twos, tens in that range of call it 25 to 30 basis points until there is a compelling reason to break out. Is that compelling reason the first rate cut? Probably, especially as you pointed out earlier, Ben, once we get one rate cut on the books, we will then more aggressively price in future easings. And that will most likely be the real departure point for the cyclical re-steepening. So after this conversation, I've been hearing a lot about this Fed thing. I think there could be something there. How do you spell FOMC? In the week ahead, the Treasury market will see the first real stretch of summer trading conditions. We do have a few data points, but frankly, the big question of whether or not Powell is going to follow through with a 25 basis point ease in July has been definitively answered. The open question is now, will the campaign be 50 or 75 basis points before the Fed chooses to pause and assess the amount of upside created from the fine-tuning policy move? We've been contemplating what the Treasury market might look like if we removed some of the major headwinds which have occupied investors throughout the summer. The first is international trade, the second is European monetary policy, and the third is the overall global growth outlook. Now, we can envision a situation that in the beginning of 2020, we see some type of deal between the U.S. and China on the trade war front. But at this point, we're over a year into it. And the idea that there will be a grand compromise is really hard for us to get our arms around. What we'll probably see is a window dressing deal, effectively toothless, at the beginning of next year. 
We've been on about this idea that the fourth quarter seasonals have changed decidedly to favor higher yields in the Treasury market as optimism for the year ahead gets priced in. Progress towards a deal with China would be very consistent with this. The bigger unknown is how far are rates going to back up when that optimism hits. We don't expect 3% 10-year yields is going to be on the radar anytime soon, but that doesn't mean that we can't get north of 225 with a shot at 250. If that does happen in 2019, it will be a Q4 event, and presumably it will be driven by that degree of optimism on the trade front and as a function of both the ECB and the Fed shifting to an easier policy stance. As we witnessed in the week just past, a more stimulative policy stance leads to higher inflation expectations. Ten-year break-evens have increased rather dramatically off of the recent lows, and we're anticipating a return to the 185 to 195 basis point trading range in relatively short order. Let us not forget retail sales, which is on the calendar for Tuesday. This information is for June. The reason that we're so focused on retail sales is the relevance of the consumer to the overall economy. The current consensus is for a one-tenth of a percent increase in June. Now, given that this is not an inflation-adjusted series, one-tenth of a percent increase in June versus the one-tenth of a percent increase in headline CPI suggests that in real terms we'll probably be flat, if not down a bit. So watch this space, particularly given the ongoing debate of just how far the Fed is going to need to cut interest rates to prevent the U.S. economy from slipping into a recession. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who's managed to make it this far. As we settle in for the pre-FOMC doldrums, we're thankful for the timing of Amazon Prime Day as we find ourselves in desperate need of, well, anything that's on sale. That's deflationary, right? Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. 
it does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.